You're listening to Just, stories about the people working to build thriving communities rooted in justice. I'm Jess Averhart, co-founder of Black Wall Street Homecoming. And I'm Rob Shields, executive director of the ReCity Network. All right, look, so here's why we're here. We're here to get proximate. We're here to listen. We're here to process. And we're here to help you process. But here's what we're not going to do. We're not going to be preachy because we don't have all the answers and we will never make you feel like an outsider. Keeping with the theme of sharing, we always want to acknowledge the whole person and that starts with our personal Personal check-in. Let's do it. Okay. All right. Here we go. (laughs) We're back. Season three is rolling. we're in full effect now that we're in episode episode two. It's like real deal, holy field. It, that's a fun thing to say. I it's hitting me anew. Just man, I've I've been sitting with the stuff from last episode. How awesome! I mean, Osha Gray Davidson. Wow, like, man, so good. That he, was so good. Just the history, how well versed he was on so many different threads to be able to see clearly. It's like. I, he took us on a journey. And so if you're listening in now and you're like, hey, I just found out about this podcast. What's this whole thing about? I would press the rewind button, if nothing else, to go back to the beginning of this season to make sure that you're, I think, just set up for the right lens of which, because this conversation today is 100% going to build off of that. And we're really going to continue to stay intentional on these themes that we named back in episode one around fusion friendships and all these things that I think are really relevant to justice work and make it truly impactful. So. Yeah. We would not be offended if you need to press pause right now and go do that. We'll be here. We'll be here waiting for you when you get back. Right, Jess? Definitely. Definitely. I, I can't wait for you to ask me about my check-in because it's related to this. <laughs> How you doing? How you doing? I'm going to keep it simple. Usually my questions are kind of long-winded and it gives you plenty of time, but I think I just did that with that preamble. So you should be locked and loaded now. How you doing, friend? Oh, I love it. I'm doing great. I'm doing great. I am... Um, I'm feeling like the hope of spring, the Mm. weather has been Mm. turning, having OSHA be our first episode has been really cool. Our listeners don't know this and they probably just assume we both read the book, but you've read the book, Best of Enemies. Mm -hmm. I had not. So I ordered it right away. I saw the movie and know the story in fable tale and then saw the movie, but I got the book because there was so much that he brought forward and, and through our questions that I was like, okay. I got to get into this. So I'm excited. I'm not too far in, but I'm excited to finish it here pretty soon. And just, it's just cool. So you talked about the two camps. And so do you know what camp you're in yet? Remember the camps of, uh, Hey, the people that wanted, Hey, why all this history versus I love the history. Which one of those do you feel like is too soon to tell? No, I'm no, I'm firmly in the history part. I'm all, I've always been in the history part and it doesn't hurt that we're talking about a city that I live in. So there's that, that just brings it to life, but I'm, I, you should see my library. I've got all the I've got all the history books. I just am into it. I'm into the biographies of our presidents and the whole deal. So this is this is right up my alley. I'm excited to to get deeper into the book and fully explore the story versus the motion picture version, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And then spring, right? And then my other check in just simply is that the weather is breaking. It feels fresh and new. The flowers are starting to bloom. It's just it's a good. It feels good, and I and the people around me are happy about the weather too. So everybody's mood is shifting a little bit. I don't know about mm. you, but so that's my check-in, friend. How are you doing? How what are you feeling? This renewed goodness out there. I am. I'm. Ca- I'm feeling what you're putting. I'm picking up what you're putting down. And, and that's, <laughs> that's it. Because that's uh, yeah. the sunshine. Can we just say, yeah. man, I've never appreciated it more. And 
for just the mental health, spiritual health, just like getting out and just feeling sun on your face. I don't know if you were, I don't know how you measure your vitamin D deficiency, but for a while there, right? Of like 14 out of 16 days, it was raining. So I don't know where our listeners are tuning in from. They're in Seattle. They're like, quit complaining. Right. It, this is our life. Or if you're from England, you know, and you're like, oh, whatever. These guys are wimps. But for us, I mean, it just felt maybe because of COVID, winter and rain, that all of that yeah. trifecta of awfulness, man, yeah. uh, it has made me very grateful. And it's amazing that, uh, what a year like this will do to you to make you look for the small little victories and things that you took for granted before. Yeah. So yeah, I'm feeling that across my family. It is way easier to entertain four kids when you can send them Get into a backyard. Back. Yes. Yeah. You can make chair forts, but, but that only kind of works <laughs> in like a so one-off. Off. Yeah. You can't do that two days in a row. That is, it gets stale really fast. And we found the end of Disney Plus. Like we found that six months ago. So any other parents already know, like we- (laughs) I love it. And you can't send your kids to the Avengers section yet because it's probably too much of it. Or were you doing Avengers too? Your kids are probably too small to be doing like the end of wars Avengers. This is hilarious. This is hilarious. My kids are (laughs) in that sweet spot where a lot of that stuff goes over their head where they're not old enough to be afraid by that stuff. So we can sneak in a few of those movies, not all of them. Any other parent listening and will understand like, yeah, you start getting tired of all these cartoons. You're like, can we get them to watch this with us so that we actually enjoy this movie together? How many times can we watch Moana or whatever? Yeah, I I get it. Trey, obviously everyone knows he's so old, but I remember old meaning 18, but I remember when he was little and we were on the, we were on the circuit of Shark Boy and Lava Girl. It felt like, for a year. I've watched it a thousand times. So I, I feel for you, friend. I do. Yeah. And there's, I mean, speaking of movies, there's, this is the time that I think actually circles back to the conversation we were just having. This is a time where like, there's a lot of media, there's, there's podcasts, there, there's movies, there's documentaries. My wife and I watched One Night in Miami recently, just like the, just these ideas that are floating out there. There's so much out there to lean into. And so when you feel paralyzed, maybe your action step after last episode was go pick up Best of Enemies. And I highly recommend you do that. But if you're not local to Durham and you're not a history buff and you just, you need baby steps, there's so much out there that I think we'll continue to try to provide resources of all types for you, wherever you are on this journey, because it is a lifelong journey. And maybe you're feeling a little vitamin D deficient and you're like, you know what? Today's not a deep dive history day. Today is just a podcast day. Today is a a movie day. There's so much out there that can really sharpen you, kind of help fill your blind spots. And I think this conversation today it's probably going to leave you with a whole lot of other homework to be able to do that. Yeah. I'm going to, without further ado, we're going to welcome on our guests. I can't wait for this conversation. We have Keith Daniel and Tom Drogi who are joining us today of Resilient Ventures. Keith, Tom, are you guys, are you guys on? Can you hear us? We're here. Yes, we're here. Thank you. Good hey. morning. Hey, Tim. Glad to have you on with us. This is great. Welcome. We're pumped for this conversation. And we both, we go back a ways you know, for our listeners. These are two, two men uh, who have been navigating the justice space here in Durham, North Carolina for a while to get doing it together for a while. Their Resilient Ventures is this powerful movement to address disparities in ways that it's, it's a fresh conversation. One Jess that I, th- I know is close to your heart that we haven't really named specifically in the three years, the three seasons that we've been doing this. And so this is going to help take our listeners, I think, and kind of raise the IQ level a little bit in a more holistic way. So I'm pumped for this. Keith, Tom, 
thank you for coming and just sharing with us today and taking the time. I'm going to set the conversation up a little bit, and then we're going to jump straight into this thing. So for those of you who don't know, Resilient Ventures, their mission is to close the wealth gap by expanding access to capital, networks, and opportunities, specifically to African-American entrepreneurs. So they leverage their network of investors and experienced entrepreneurs who are passionate about racial equity. They've named racial equity you know, as a value, as a stated goal to maximize the success of African-American ventures. Their original committed capital goal when they incorporated at the end of 2018 was $10 million. So they're aiming big goals here. They adjusted to 5 million and are now on track to secure that by the time that this episode airs, the month of March. And they are now currently at $3.525 million. And a little bit about Keith and Tom. Keith is the owner of Madison Consulting Group, LLC. He's got 30 years in higher education, career placement, MBA, student affairs, human resources, and religious life. So just running the gamut here. He's been the ED of strategy for Step Up North Carolina. He's been an ED for uh, Durham Cares, both of which are really anchor, longstanding partners of the ReCity Network here in Durham. And I've, I've known Keith personally walked alongside of him, benefited from his wisdom just personally as a mentor, someone who I've gone to consistently on my own justice journey to say, please teach me. I need to learn from you. And he has graciously carved out time and his very busy schedule to invest in helping me on this path that I'm on. And Tom, similarly, I would say actually not similarly, his bio actually has, it doesn't read anything like Keith's, which is kind of the whole point of kind why, of the point, kind of, kind the, of point the point of, of why I think this conversation is going to be <laughs> such a rich one. Flip the script a little bit. Tom, the owner of Drogi Computing Services, software company, 30 years in innovating with SaaS, database application, software competition. And he's a founding board member of NC Technology Association. He's a software developer and he's a publisher. So honestly, there's not a whole lot of through lines between those two bios, but I think I'm really excited for our listeners to be able to hear from you both. Tom, you've also been walking alongside of me in this journey with ReCity and kind of building this thing here in Durham and have benefited from, especially as a fellow white man, just being able to be able to go to you with specific questions on what does it look like to be a white man navigating the justice space in a town like Durham, North Carolina. And I've really enjoyed being able to co-labor with you on that journey. Gentlemen, it's a privilege. Let's just go ahead and dive straight into this thing. Our listeners are probably, they're foaming at the mouth now. They're like, tell me more. Rob, shut up so we can get to the good stuff. Tell us the story of Resilient Ventures. Tell us, for people who know nothing, assume there's no knowledge, what's the problem you guys are aiming to solve and tell us what makes Resilient Ventures unique in its approach in trying to solve that problem. And then tell our audience why the name. I know Jess and I love asking that questions of like how things came to be called the way that they're called. So would love to you to include in that why the name Resilient Ventures as the name of this company. Well, hey, thank you, Rob. And we are so glad to be here. And I, I will delay that question a little bit by first, I want to shout out to your last podcast because... Uh, Best of Enemies was really inspirational for Keith and I. It's one of the stories we talk about a lot through our training on racial equity. We were both, Keith invited me to the screening, so that was amazing. Got to see Taraji Henson walk by. And City yourselves, you had that post-meeting with Howard Clemson. So yeah, that's inspirational part of what we're trying to do, understand. For Keith and I, this is actually our third effort together. Our second effort was working with my white peers mostly to help understand systemic racism. And as we navigated that conversation, we spent two years doing that. 
and looking at the history. And I often had imaginations, like I would think like, what if we hadn't chosen slavery over indentured servanthood? Like, what if we'd stuck with that? Or what if we really had paid the uh, emancipated slaves their 40 acres and a mule, not given it to them, but paid them their freedmen wages, the, the wages they were due? You know, what a world we'd be in, a world, a different world. But it seems, as I learned more and more about the history, we've done everything except what seems the most obvious and dignifying thing to do. And like you pointed out, it is about access. Time and time again, it's been demonstrated that it's not programs, it's not helping. Internationally, we know that it's just a matter of providing access to capital access to those networks and access to those opportunities. So, you know, the 20th century, we created the wealth gap even further. Every single wealth building program that was designed for white people and not for black people, FHA, GI Bill. We even had a war on poverty, which really was a war on black people for a couple of years. And then it turned into the, the war on crime and law and order. So, We've never tried just providing access. And so that was the inception of the idea of what we need to do. Like we were teaching people about systemic racism and Keith and I would have long conversations and trying to figure out what is it that we would do. And so this is what we're doing. Yeah, I appreciate that, Tom. It actually has a lot of overtones from our last episode around the what ifs and little bit of reparations we got into at the end in last season. So I appreciate historic perspective and asking that sort of critical question, because when you ask questions, you oftentimes not when you ask questions, you need to be prepared for the answer. And I love that the two of you are saying, okay, there are a lot, there's a lot of ground to cover here. We in and of ourselves can't cover that ground alone, but you carved out a space for yourself. And I genuinely appreciate that because I think in the world that I live in for our listeners, I've been in and around and orbiting early stage startups and can appreciate the true hurdles that exist for our Black startup founders. And the talent and innovation that comes out of that community is like insane. There's so much, there's so much just great, these ideas that literally can disrupt an industry and change the world for better and all of those things. But the constant drumbeat of what, why can't we get it over the next, jump over that next hurdle and get it across the finish line is so much of what you're talking about. There's this wealth gap, there's access issues, right? It's not a shortage of talent. It's not that. It's simply two equally positioned people who look different, one black and one white can have the same idea and the traction that one will get over the other simply because of bias, prejudice, racism, we name it, and systems that have been put in place, unfortunately could shelter that greatness, right? And then the world would never see it. And so what you all are doing and, and so many like you are doing is creating a very specific lane for a very specific founder to enhance and grow their dream. And I love it. I love it all. Keith, I'd love for you to expand on the name itself. But even to me, just like to piggyback off of what was just said, that maybe Tom and Keith, you can validate this. But what I'm hearing is the problem is no access or unjust access. And what your solution is, is to create access. And the statistic around the fact that there are 2.6 million African-American owned small businesses in America today 
yet only 1% of venture capital is invested in African-American-owned businesses, that stat, even if you didn't have 400 years of unjust history, is itself a disparity, even if you were starting from a blank slate. And we all know that's not the case, right? So it's compounded injustice in many ways. And you're, I think the OSHA conversation last time talked about how clearly there's a through line around injustice and wealth, and you got you to follow the money. Let's follow mm-hmm. the money of what greed helped to build all this. And I think what you guys are doing is trying to use money in a way that actually helps to repair and to restore. And that's a beautiful thing to me. So Keith, I'd love to just hear a little bit before we move on, like tell us more about the, the history of this name. Why call it Resilient Ventures? Well, I, I can't quite recall what discernment Tom and I had for the name Resilient, to be honest. In our evolution of words that take on meaning in the course of history, Resilient certainly has taken on a lot of meaning. It's, it, it comes up in multiple settings. We talk about Durham being a gritty town. We talk about other dynamics of Durham that are, I've heard people say over the years. Now, my family's from Durham. My roots are deep in Oxford, North Carolina, in Durham, North Carolina, though I was born in Washington, D.C. So I know what it meant to be in the South and then for my parents and aunts and uncles to leave the South to pursue better uh, opportunities and to get out of the violence of the South. But a lot remained here. And we know the history of Durham, the legacy of Black Wall Street and the legacy of people coming to Durham and saying, oh, my God, what this is like a little taste of heaven, the way historically uh, the Black community has thrived. Even you build a highway through our community and yet still we rise, right? Still we stand. But I know, like most words, it's loaded. I know some people in my community who say, I'm tired of y'all calling us resilient because all it is saying is that pull yourself up by your bootstraps and, and if one can do it, all can do it. And so it carries a connotation that certainly is reflective of the BIPOC community as has now been reckoned with what it means to overcome and to still believe and have hope. We could have named it Hope Ventures, Love Ventures, because again, Tom and I are inspired by a biblical motivation. We, we feel called to this work. And in many ways, it reflects us as individuals. No one likes to necessarily show off or say, look at what we've done, but Our lives have been a reflection of resilience and having gone through some very committed relationships across the color line, for example. But when I look at other firms, like there is a firm out there called Access Ventures. There's a firm called Village Capital, which I like the village mindset that it takes. It takes a village, but resilience seemed to come fairly easily to us as I think about, yeah, we didn't really debate a whole lot over what's the right name. It couldn't be Perseverance Fund or whatever. That just seems a little bit too many syllables, but (laughs) Uh, When I wake up, you know, we talk about things that inspire you or mission statements and things like that. You know, what what's the first word that maybe you kind of liked your your passion and resilience does it without a whole lot of explanation around it. Last thing I'll say about that is we, you know, part of us building our deck as companies must do uh, to raise money. We took some time to think about each of our life stories and when I began to think about my mother and my father and what they're leaving the South to go North to pursue careers and I, and I look back over their life and that that is a word that really reflects them. And I'm fortunate to have both my parents in their 80s and still their well-being and they're um, able to be independent. And the same for uh, my grandparents. They live a quite a long life, except for my grandfather's. I didn't know my father's father, but it speaks to a very real reckoning with my own kind of personal journey. So I think that's why it came easy for me too. 
I only would add, it's a term I first heard in, in Ariane when people were asked to give a word that explained themselves. And as we ran, ran around the circle with 70 people, there were two or three African-Americans that used that word to describe themselves. And I thought it would be a good word that would be welcoming because as Jess mentioned, the bias in this space is undeniable if you can see it, but most people choose not to see it. So that results in a lot of things happening like black founders do not apply to traditional white venture firms. So I think we wanted to make sure that black founders would read between the lines and wonder what's about this fund that uses the word resilient. But you know, it's it's ironic how resilient has really lost its the term has been diluted. So many people use it for stuff that is not resilient. In biology, it refers to an organism that can withstand constant shock. So like I think of a coral reef that's constantly pounded by the waves, yet manages to survive. You know, so it, it means a lot to me. I think the term's been diluted. I hate to say it when it's getting on the resilient bandwagon in some ways. But. I love that last definition, though. That spoke to me. I saw Rob was shaking his head. Yes, that's now that's a definition right there. Thriving. That's not exactly what you said, but I'm going to change it up. Thriving in the face of constant <laughs> pounding shock, shock yeah. right? Shock. Right. That's it. I, I love that. I love the, I, the notion of a people, a community, a person, a family thriving, because sometimes we, we can't control the shock stuff. We can't control that, but we can, we can control how we move and navigate through it. So that does lead me to this next question. You've been at this a minute. You're raising a bunch of money, right? Yeah. People know about you as a co-founder of Black Wall Street Homecoming. We're thrilled when you came into the game because it just, it felt right and right timing. Keith, you talked about Black Wall Street here in Durham. We have a community with a tradition of, of punching above our weight class and, and being resilient. And so this was great to, to see you all enter that space. So you've been at this a minute. What have you seen? What are the successes? Where are you at right now? And maybe share with our audience some of the challenges. But just if you were to just headline this, how's this been the last few years as you've been out there raising these dollars for founders with incredible ideas? I wake up every day with a deepening sense of gratitude to be on this side of the ledger, so to speak. Most of my career has been in philanthropy and higher education, administration and leadership. And so transitioning to this kind of third career has after having started my own kind of consulting practice and beginning to imagine and, and to live a life of ownership and independence personally, uh, and then be to invite to be invited by Tom to start this fund, I thought, well, that's interesting. I, I'm aware of many of my peers who graduated from Duke, went to MBA school and have gone on to be highly successful. And that network in and of itself, again, my career has been primarily at Duke but I've had a chance to interact with other universities around the country through a program called LEAD. I want to give a shout out to the Leadership Education and Development Program. It's just headquartered out of Atlanta, started at the University of Wharton School of Business in 1980. And last year was going to be the 40th anniversary commemoration up in D.C. It was going to be a big affair, but there are thousands of alumni, African-American, Hispanic, other students of color who have gone through the LEAD program as a summer experience on these college campuses. And my time doing that lo and behold, was setting me up for this because uh, the program is actually uh, started out as a month long and they would do a pitch at the end and they actually compete now for dollars. And these are emerging college students. And so being in that kind of 
encouraging space to say, hey, there's a world out there for you to pursue that's not just corporate America. And you can perhaps be your own founder and create solutions and solve problems and be an owner. When the opportunity came, I was like, oh, now I get to practice what I, you know, they say, if you can't do teach or something like that. But so I'm doing it the other way. I can't teach. So do it. So go out and do it. You know, raising the money hasn't been really difficult for me over the years in higher ed. I worked on a large grant at Duke Chapel and that sort of thing. So raising money is what it is. You got to not be afraid to ask. You got to be confident in your vision. I did have a lot of trepidation about learning the the due diligence process and engaging in that. And that's still a level of pretty high learning curve for me. And I'm honest, I'm glad Tom brings a level of acumen and, and, and resolve with that. And then we have one of the top lawyers in the country and the firm, Forrest firm, David Morris, on yeah. our shoulder, on our back, slapping our hand, de-risking our investments. So there's a lot of complexity to it that is energizing, but also something that every day I wake up saying, okay, do we want to be really big or because we were sort of dared to do the 10 million. We first said to each other, okay, we'll raise a $2 million fund. And one of our advisors said, why would you do that? You got to raise at least 10 million. I mean, we didn't know. I mean, we didn't know stories that we, we did some like reckoning with other funds. And I reached out to a couple of my peers at Duke up in the North. One of my classmates raised a hundred million dollar fund. I was like, Carmichael, tell me uh, a little bit about this work and, and a few <laughs> others. But once we got affirmation from you and others in the community, like right thing, there's not a fund really like this here. It put some wind in ourselves. There's a part of me, and I, I don't know, we can be our own worst critic at sometimes. And God has always said to me, never despise small beginnings. But when I hear about the funds that are out there and the, how much money, I'm like, okay, let me be reminded that it's not just about writing the checks because we're, our checks aren't insignificant. They're $100,000 checks, but it's like people are writing multi-million dollar checks to white firms like every day and they're able to come back and ask for more and it's, and they can fail and fail fast. And they can, I'm like, we got one shot. Yeah, I can't be asking I got to, I'm going to ask you one time and you're like, show me your returns. How many exits have you had? It's not just about the exits, at least not right now. We are on that mission. But so there is that tension that comes with the world of venture and how much money is actually being deployed and who's getting it. We all saw that with the pandemic about the disparities around how to, how to access even the funds that are supposed to be available to all companies and that sort of thing. So that's just kind of a broad brush of, to answer your question to some degree, I hope. Yeah. Helpful. Thank you, Keith. Thank you. Help our listeners that are maybe less familiar with this world. Honestly, that, that would be me. I'm probably the least qualified on this call to navigate the ins and outs of this because I've pretty much been in the nonprofit philanthropy space my whole life. So listener Joe, right? Tell us, is there a story or a company or a person that kind of encapsulates kind of the spirit of Resilient Ventures to you in that, hey, this helps understand the problems and how they overcame and the resilience they showed to be able to see that this is the right thing to do, it's worth doing, and it just is like this success story, even if it's still in process. Is there someone, when you look across the Resilient Venture portfolio, that just comes to mind as, you know what, this is it. This is why we do this, and we want to do more of this. Well, I can't think of one that's not that doesn't ex exhibit that. This is an exciting journey. I, I feel like, actually, one of our imaginations is the Jackie Robinson story. And I feel like we're watching Jackie Robinson happen right now. Yeah. Like I get calls from entrepreneurs as they're stepping off the airplane. And it was like calling me was the first thing he wanted to do to tell me about, not that he wanted more money, but just tell me what great thing was happening to them. Going up to 
culture shifting weekend and meeting Jess. Jess, remember, we were there in New York, and that was an amazing 200 of the top venture people, African American in in the world to that meeting. But yeah, that was. Uh, can I just make a fine point? Yeah. So we meet up in New York and culture shifting weekend is an, is incredible. Tom just described it perfectly. You've got all these like movers and shakers from all over coming in. And, you know, I'm expecting to see no one I know. And of course, here comes Tom walking through the crowd. Now this is a predominantly black audience of, of movers. And here come Tom talking about resilient ventures of getting people excited about the fund. And I was so proud to like demonstrate that there is this, Commitment. There's a commitment, at least here in Durham, at least let's just bring it all the way down to the micro level between Tom and Keith to shatter some of these stereotypes around wanting to see Black founders win. There are members of communities across the country that want to see Black founders win. And Keith and Tom, and we're going to get to this in a minute, but you all coming together to sort of model that was really cool to see you in New York to bring that to life for folks who hear about it but don't often see it. And that was neat. So I just wanted to, because you're right, that was very cool to run into you in Midtown Manhattan. Instead of thinking of individuals, for me, the, the excitement is across the line of what we see. We see, Like Jess is alluding to, seeing wealthy white people who built businesses see the need to invest and join us in this. It's just an amazing journey. It's one that has to be navigated carefully because honestly, at every turn, kind of the white superiority raises its ugly head. And that's why the dangers are that, like Keith said, that we're perceived as philanthropy or charity. And staying to that line, that is just about access. And these companies with the same kind of wind behind their sails that we give the white companies, they will do well and exceedingly well. Mm. I just got news and something I saw yesterday that, do you guys know that Calendly is a black owned software as a solution program? I, I use it, yes, I, I, did not know, I did not know that, but I use it and I love it. Yeah, yeah. it's about to be a unicorn in the yeah. investment world. So it's about to be a billion dollar company. So. This is are my, are my prices going to go up per month? Do I need to prepare to budget for that? Okay. So, <laughs> well, can I jump in here for a second? Because I just realized something was happening. I'm pointing out that Tom runs up to New York and is a white guy in the sea of bl- black movers and shakers. And I'm talking about this synergy around creating opportunities where there's a laser focus on black founders to win, I think is how I was saying it. And both of you wanted to make sure that we were talking, that I that we rounded the corner around acknowledging white patriarchy and this charity mindset. <laughs> that I would like to just point out that when I said that, I wasn't thinking about those things. I wasn't thinking about charity mindset. I wasn't thinking about white white patriarchy. (laughs) And I know that you all have to say those things because it's important to establish that's not the frame of mind or the lens in which you work. And I know you personally, and I know that. But I also want to point out that Black folks don't always think that either. We do look for and Keith can speak to this too, but I think it's important to acknowledge that this wealth gap is real and we need to close it. And it's about recognizing, it's about recognizing talent and funding that talent for what it is, not about charity. In my mind, I never think about my 
founders, my friends, my colleagues as a deficit in a deficit or that they need help or charity. I never think about it. I literally don't think about it that way. I think about it as, do you know how bomb this person is? Y'all need to fund them before somebody else does. And that's how I see it. So when you all come together as a team, I see you as funding my colleagues and friends who are about to kill the game, not charity or white patriarchy. I see it as you guys are innovators and recognize that over here, if you miss out, too bad. You missed out. Somebody else is going to come in and get it. And you guys see it as an opportunity, like a real opportunity, not charity. So I just wanted to point that out because Black folks don't always assume that. And mm. I certainly don't acknowledge or see my circle of influence who are working really hard to create incredible things as seeking charity. And if you happen to be white, your investment is charitable. I see your investment as an investment <laughs> in something incredible. So I just want to point that out. Well, I really affirm that, Jessica, that <laughs> I, I wasn't hearing it from you. It's just, it is the reality of my peers that I live with that have that perspective. Mm. It is, it is. That's fair. That's fair. Yeah, I get it's, that. I get that we don't all carry that lens, but I don't think that we hear that enough from my peers. I mean, we, not that we're not saying it, it's just that I think there's a lot of assumptions being made out here in the marketplace right now. And I would just want to dispel that myth in, mm. in some ways. I know, that's good. It almost goes back to what you guys shared and what's in a name, right? From the very beginning, Keith, I can recall conversations early in ReCities days where a lot of the feedback you would give me on this journey of how you talk about the problem is shifting from this deficit mindset, which I think anyone in any white people, I think our default can often be of looking at what's missing versus what's, what is the asset that's there. And so I think you guys naming resiliency in your name, to me, that's part of the, the journey that in order to create access, you're having to help people who represent the money, which often is in white hands, shift this conversation from a deficit mentality to an asset-based mentality that you're not, hey, I'm not asking for charity here. This is something where you need to change the way you're, appro you're viewing this. Your lens is off here. Yeah, it's uh, a lot of reckoning we've had to come to and working together, Tom and I. One of the things, speaking about our relationship, that we have to take into account is we are from two different worlds, two different spaces. And though we've done some work together, it's been, I mean, this was a big leap for me personally to accept the opportunity to move more deeply around these conversations with Tom into spaces that he was inviting me in, mostly his white peers who are wealthy. And for our listening uh, audience, I am, I've been saying this more since once I crossed the 50, 50 year old line of life, I get less concerned about saying how old I am even more, but I will put that out there to say, I've been fortunate to walk this earth for half century plus two and both living in the North and in the South and closely observing people in our community. How do they survive the hell and the, the fury of what's, what is known or been called white backlash? And these other terms that have become increasingly more confronted, given this uh, contemporary moment we've been living in. Issues of fragility, issues of concern with the raising of the voices of Black Lives Matter, and just the hellacious kind of violence around that. So our persisting in this conversation is an everyday intentionality to say that we do believe the world is a better place if we can work across the color line in, a, in an integrated way. And coming to terms of what it means to what the civil rights leaders, at least those who sided with King around this idea of friendship, to not view whites as our enemies and that we desire friendship. Now, again, every day in America, 
people of color have to wake up and decide, is that the type of friendship I want to pursue? And I have no judgment amongst those who say, I just can't do that anymore. I've got to stay in spaces that are safe for me. I finally got around to reading Ta-Nehisi Coates' book during this pandemic season. And I kind of marveled at how he talked about Howard University and the Mecca and not being a person of faith and then coming into contact with a mother who had, whose son had been, been killed, actually, in this instance, by a Black police officer. And I only go there with this because I know, I understand you all been looking at the kind of the friendship side of this and, and what difference it makes. But it is, we decide every day when we get up, who am I going to keep company with? And what sacrifice is it? when I choose to keep company with across the color line. Now, whites are having to ask this question, the liberal and the moderate whites are having to ask the more challenging question is, how much sacrifice am I willing to make? How many friends am I willing to lose in order for the gaps to be closed? Again, C.P. Ellis, at the end of his life, lost all of his relationships. Now, of course, he was way on the other side of the, the clan and all of that. So, of course, that was going to all be deconstructed and dismantled. Yeah. But I think that's something that I marvel at as I watch some of my peers, Tom being the principal one, now that we're in, in covenant together and in business together, when white peers start to say, oh, I think there's more I can do. And whether that's write a bigger check or take that quote risk that you think is so high on a founder of color who doesn't come from a space or you don't understand their business model or you don't realize your unconscious bias at work against you to see the value, all of that. And that's, again, takes a level of resilience because sometimes I walk into these rooms and some rooms I, I've decided and I'll tell Tom at times, like, I'm not coming to that meeting today. <laughs> White men sitting around the table pontificating about a risk and what's not risky. And I, I just don't have the energy to, to try to convince you anymore. And, and so that's part of the real deal. Holy field, as, as Jess said earlier. <laughs> Good, Keith. I'm always, I, I always, it took me a second to get back into our questions because I, I love to hear you reflect on your work. I'm glad you brought up the word risk. It's annoying. It's coded for our folks. And it is, there's a lot there. I think I've shared it in another podcast, just all the hoops and hurdles oftentimes that we have to jump because we're considered a risk to prove ourselves worthy of even a second look, which is a whole thing. But I appreciate you taking us home on that fusion friendship tip because that is what we've unpacked, I think, for our audience today, our listeners today, is it's remarkable in nature in some ways. And it seems off, like you said, Keith, it's a choice. So it's it can be remarkable from the outside, but I think that what you're saying and what both of you probably would affirm is that it's an active choice to be in business, to be in covenant, as you put it, together. And the outcomes of that choice are exponent. Can you just imagine the outcomes of making a decision to do this work together? The ripple effect, the force multiplier that you're setting up for founders to be successful. And also, it's not even about the check. It's about creating a larger and larger and larger community of belief. Arlen talks about this underestimated underestimated founder. What she's saying is that the, it's not the founder's issue. It's a belief issue on the other side. This founder, it's not a founder's problem. It's not a founder's lack of talent. It's everybody else who's got to get with the program. So I appreciate this fusion friendship 
because what you're doing is amplifying the belief in the community of belief. And that's key, right? Because it models it for other folks and for those who invest in your fund. So as we think about it, we're going to close the loop here and round third and head for home. We always do this piece, Keith, because you've been on our podcast before, the show up moment. I'd love to hear how you think our listeners can show up. And that can be personally, that can be as in, in relationship to resilient ventures. It could be both. But what's tugging on you that you want to leave our listeners with? And we'll let you all end it on that note. Yes. Can I just add a little bit from my side, though, on, on the friendship? Because I think... Oh, friend, please. Yeah, Tom. <laughs> I've had intentional friendships across the color line before, but I've learned amazing things from being in relation with Keith primarily the understanding of relational versus transactional, because I, as a white person, as a white man, my relationships are mostly transactional. So it was really helpful for me when Keith started off, we started off together working on a task, which could have just been a transactional kind of thing. He helping do this CDR, but he was very clear. And I appreciate this, that he pointed out the risk to him and the cost to him and the potential of honestly betrayal. Like as a white person, we can go into these spaces and we can walk in and we can walk out. We always have the option to leave. So I think for me, it was important understanding to see really what's at stake here and then to commit and then to, you know, plan to stay there. And for me, it's been a great benefit, not just our friendship, but changing my life to think more relational. It's it's benefited me. And and Keith and I do a lot of different stuff together. We we don't just focus on on the jobs. I think it's also important for those that want to have this experience of fusion friendship is to, well, I think two things. One, you know, look for a peer relationship that's going to be a relationship. Often it helps to have something to do to build that, but focus on the relationship and then keep that focus. And I think to remember that racism in your relationship will always raise that ugly head and to constantly watch out for the the cultural force to be on the superior side of the relationship. Keeping that in mind, I think, is essential to to have real relational friendships across color line. Great. That's good. That's a good wisdom right there, Tom, what you just Mm -hmm. said at the end, being paying attention to when it shows up because it it will. Keith, what about you as far as a show up moment when you're thinking about our listeners and the work that you're doing, the friendship you have, like anything tugging at you that you want to leave our listeners with? Yeah, I think, well, in terms of starting on a journey and thinking in terms of time, right? We are Tom mentioned transactional relationships take time. Building trust takes time. And I've, again, I've mentioned it before. I'll mention it again. Having lived long enough to watch my children grow up and look back and say, now where in the world did that time go? Yeah. And I realized how much um, work it has been as a parent of my children and watching them reckon with relationships and uh, make their choices, like who they um, build friendships with and what it looks like to have those friendships across the color line. And it, it's hard work. And your mindset has to be long term. And I think that's one thing about the Western world and some of our cultural like defaults is we don't know how to do that. And so I've been having some companions that we, we have. The Durham Cares has been focused on the pilgrimage of pain and hope, looking at the historical narratives and as you say, how has these relationships been made possible? What brings people into these collisions of what I call 
wow, the world can be different than it is today. And we can still have hope to work against it. But it mean, it might mean I might not see it on this side. And I, again, being born when I was born, I'm glad some folks fought and had a vision of community that they knew they weren't going to experience, but their children could. So we really have to ask ourselves, what is it the world we want to create? So people who show up with us, first of all, you got to be prepared to be taught in a different way. I marvel anytime a white person actually, I get a sense they really see us as teachers of a better way to live. And it's not about me now humiliating you, although that's tempting. Me wanting you to feel bad as a white person. I want you to feel bad about your white skin, the way I've had to deal with your mess and overcoming that. Show up prepared to be taught by people, to be led by people of color, to be, to honor their humanity and dignity in ways that doesn't lead to your own exploitation of that, of their humanity and dignity which again is a hard work when your whole world has been either silently oriented to this idea that you are supreme as a person raced as white. That is that in itself, that is as much work as it was for the movement leaders to encourage blacks to realize, no, you don't have to give up your seat on the bus. Yeah, you can sit at a lunch counter and get a cup of coffee and we don't plan to stop there. We believe we can own the counter. We can own the cafe. And so I point out, Dorian as one of our, Dorian Bolden, I got to give him a shout out as, you know, show up in these spaces that have been created with, by Black founders and Black leaders. And we got a legacy story in the making in him here in Durham and his aspirations to expand beyond Main Street Durham. And so that's what we, that's how we're trying to show up as a fund with integrity. And it, I wish we could fund every founder. <laughs> that's a hard part of this too, showing up and realizing that no, is it just another form of yes, if it doesn't come in the form of a check. We still want to introduce you to people. We still want to open the networks and so on and so forth. Thank you. Rob, you want to land this for us? I'm, I'm so, I'm, again, furious notes. I always show this. Nobody can see me when I'm doing my, doing my podcast. And I always, lift up, I always lift up my notebook as if the world is like, okay, Jess, nobody can picture it. a notebook. Yeah, they, I think <laughs> they can join that journey with you. They can use their imagination. Yeah, we all, I mean, that's I'm the note thing. I love taking notes. I think, that, I think that's the permit. I mean, th this idea of a student, Keith, and you mentioned it, like, are, is this person really willing to be a student and, and really willing to be taught? I think that you definitely have taught us and our listeners. I think you've taught, brought them on a journey and invited them in to, to listen and to learn. And I think the posture of a learner is so huge in this journey. And that never stops, regardless of who you are listening. But I think there's, you need to identify what role you play in this so that you know what that learning journey looks like for you. I thank you both for leaning in. I, I think that what you've given us here is a conversation that could be part of people's educational journeys to spur them on and to help reframe. So it's a privilege to walk alongside you and, and to know you both, to watch you live these values out that you, that you talk about here in this conversation. And yeah, thank you. Thank you for taking the time to be here with us today. Yep. And follow Resilient Ventures on social, see what they're up to. We'll leave all that in the show notes, but we want to make sure that our listeners are able to watch this journey and see the companies that you're investing in so that if there's interest, they know how to get in touch with you and to follow the success stories of these founders. So thank you. Thank you, team. You guys are great. We appreciate your time today. We're grateful for, to you, Robin and Jessica, too. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks. Blessings on the rest of your day. All Thanks. Right. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Bye. I find myself, I think there's probably like a, a list of like three phrases that I say at the end of every interview, mm -hmm. because this through line of like, that was nuanced. There's a lot going on in that conversation. Yeah. And even to the ability that we prep for these interviews 
And yeah. I'm like, I'm the, we're the ones that come up with the questions. And yet still I find myself processing so much, so many layers to that onion in how I see these responses, which means we just, it affirms we've got the right, we're talking to the right people because if yeah. this feels simple, this is the wrong conversation. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah. What are your takeaways? I loved that they are so uniquely different, Tom and Keith. And I love the, I love the proof that if you have a shared core value or values, if you are mission driven and you find somebody who, you know, is in the same lane, just over maybe two lanes over, but going in the same direction, that regardless of your differences, it's quite likely that if you have shared value and shared mission, that you can accomplish a great deal together, despite obvious differences, like the obvious stuff, the kind of like shallow stuff. Mm. And once you dig a little bit deeper, what that, so what I was inspired by at the end was just like the choice that they made, the outcomes of that, the reach, the impact, frankly, that they can have as a team is so incredible. It's really remarkable. And it really does begin with Keith getting up every morning and making a choice and Tom deciding that this is what we're going to do despite the quote unquote risks that he and Keith are both taking because of the society in which we live. But they make that choice and they rock it out. They're at 3 million. And seriously, the impact that they're going to have just simply based on a very personal value-centered biblical choice is going to have incredible ripple effects. And so if we could do more of that we really can talk about systems and dismantling systems and that's a good start. So I'm always looking for hope, right? And I yeah. I like this because a very simple friendship that could be quite powerful. And they can, I love they can together go go try to tackle really complex problems. Man, but, but simple in, in friendship, it's, complex yes, problems. Yeah. Yes. And that rooted, some, rooted in a value, rooted in a mission, rooted in a value. Yeah. Sorry. But there's this belief that they can really do some damage for good in that space. Keith is even saying, "Hey, I I don't make success here, even this side of this side of uh, of my life, right till eternity, like the goal." But I echo what you said. I think Keith said it in a powerful way. He every decide every day. He wakes mm-hmm. up every day and decides who am I going to keep company with, mm-hmm. which is a really profound question we all need to be asking. And the follow up question: How much sacrifice am I willing to make? for the gaps to be closed. Mm-hmm. And to me, that was this uh, aha. I've known about them for a while. I guess I put their friendship in this box that they decided day one to be friends and they don't have to daily decide both Keith to opt into potentially the pain that comes with being you know, on that side of friendship and the cost. And right. on, on one sense of the cost in a different way, the, the Tom's potential saying, hey, I, I can opt out at any time Mm-hmm. I'm going to have to willingly opt into, a, it's going to cost me in a different way, but that has to be a choice I make. And they both have to make that every day. That is, that's, that rings so true to me because to me, that is, you don't just, you don't just make a decision and then coast off of that decision. Not in this work. You got to wake up every day and count those costs and mm-hmm. decide whether you're going to stay at that and do the work. And he also said building that muscle of having a long-term mindset. Yes. And I thought that was really good just in this instant and just frankly, everything I'm doing in my life right now, whether it's wanting to run or the, the discipline to read every day. It's a simple, I'm making very simple kind of trite examples, but it is having a long-term mindset to dig into work and not just say, oh, I got hard, or I don't feel like it or something else is distracting me. 
we all get into that. This choice that they've made, it's not one that you can easily back out of. You're raising Mm. money, you put your brand out there, Mm. you've got founders who are applying, there's a lot riding on that, that choice that you're saying. But we do live in a society where conventional wisdom says, if it's uncomfortable, if it's not working, if the funds don't come in a timely fashion, if we don't close this round... Maybe this, maybe we'll do something else. You know, there's always somebody mm. calling you to do so. Let's open up a franchise, whatever. There's so there's a buffet of options. But he's saying in this work, the muscle has to be built to have a long-term mindset. Despite and we don't, and yeah, we, we don't, don't have we don't have a lot of practice exercising that muscle in our correct. culture of correct. quick quick fixes and yeah. And, and that's for me where I'm my personal takeaway, Jess, is that stat is staggering that we said earlier, right? That. Of the 2.6 million African-American small businesses, African-American-owned small businesses that exist, only 1% of venture capital goes to businesses like that. To me, the flip side of that, I think you, honestly, you could name the deficit a little bit, but I, I just want to name where the assets are. That 99% of the assets are going to white owned. And that feels even more powerful to say it that way to me. And so yeah. when I think about where I'm going to step in in this space, and I think there's a through line to the nonprofit world here because investors and donors, while they may have different returns, it's still kind of the same formula. True. To me, I don't understand the world of venture capital at all. You know, everyone listening to this that knows me will be like, yeah, that's you don't need to say that, Rob. I already know that about you. But okay. to me, the educational component of what they do is something that I think I can step into because I think that's everywhere. That's not just in venture capital. There's, there's this shift that needs to happen that I want to help be a part of, which is almost changing this question. So if you're a don't, if you're a potential investor, if you're white and you're part of that 99%, or if you're in, you, you can be in philanthropy, right? And you can, someone's coming to you and they want you to write a check, right? It's uh-huh. shifting from asking yourself, what are they missing? The people that are asking me to invest, what are they missing that they need from me? to the question, what am I missing that I need from them? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't, I think that's the lens shift that is going to be vital for the 99% to make because the 99% stat applies to philanthropy too. Or the, just the, wherever money flows, this mm-hmm. is a, this is a lens site issue that's going to need to change in order to disrupt the resource flow in any kind yeah. of way that's significant. And so I want to figure out where can I, where can I lean into that battle of the mentality shift? Yeah, that's right. That's right. And frankly, because it is such an innovative space right now, we talk about venture as if it's like the golden, the holy grail of funding. And anymore, you know, funding is starting to get democratized and founders are going elsewhere. So it is a true opportunity loss. So when I, it's a real thing. There's lots of different ways to get funded these days, more so than there were five years ago. And we're watching founders go into the crypto space, raise money through crowdfunding. It's just a whole new like... Robin Hood and the Merry Man. Is that what they're <laughs> Not quite that. So Not quite that. But <laughs> all I'm saying is that while venture folks, people in that space are playing around and talking about all this risk and talking about all this. They got to figure it out and ask a million questions before they decide if it's a healthy investment. These founders are like, okay, we're just going to go get funded by the folks that believe in our work and they're going to make the money. So 
I wouldn't have said this comment at the end if we did this five years ago. But now mm. I'm just like, okay, you can sit around if you want to and watch the opportunities go by. It's your loss on it's multiple levels loss. is what That's you're saying. It's, it's not just loss. on yeah. the, it's not just on the relation, like you're going to yeah. miss out on relationships that'll transform right. you. But there's also actual reasons actual. this is a good return on a financial investment because right. this isn't a charity play. These are actually ballers out there that are going to go change the world. And you get a chance to be a part of that but you got to you got to see it for the asset that it is. <laughs> yeah, and it's going to happen with or without you. Yeah. It could be an asset to you on multiple levels. Are you but but you got to change your lens to make sure you see it for the asset that it is. And I think uh, I think that's yeah. I I love that. I think that there's man. Woo. This is a good, good one. Stuff. Yes, good this stuff. Is a, I love it. Well, until next time, we're going to keep we're going to keep having the same conversation just from a different different angle. And we're different gonna, angle. Season 3. I love it has not disappointed yet. We're, we are off to a strong start. I can't wait. Our listeners, get pumped, guys. This is going to be good. This is going to be a journey. Thanks, friends. It's always fun. We'll All see right. you next we'll time. See ya. Thanks so much for listening to Just. In the spirit of sharing, if you like what you've heard, tell a friend about the show and give us a five-star rating and review. Many thanks to DJ P-Dog and producer Low Key for producing the music for our show. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Real estate developer is a very big word. You can be a real estate developer and build, dare I say, the Trump Towers, or you can focus on small neighborhoods and tiny houses. People have a palpable need to participate in the improvement of their cities. Over the last year, we've been approached by more minority developers.